Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here, and welcome back to another Not Me, Not Today podcast, Shorty. Hello, and hello to everyone, wherever you are in the world. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. I'm looking forward to today's episode. So, Leisha, what's the Shorty? Today's Shorty is about Phineas Gage. He was accidentally involved in an iron rod shooting through his skull, and he lived to tell the tale. Oh, cool. Sounds good. The fact that it happened in the 1800s makes it even cooler. Well, that really is impressive. All right, well, let's do this. Phineas Gage was born in 1823. Apparently it was July 9th, but it was hard to confirm. It is, however, on a headstone plaque dedicated to him, so I'm taking it. Well, if it is on his headstone, it seems fairly legitimate. Yeah. He was born in Grafton County, New Hampshire. He was the eldest of five children, born to Jesse Eaton Gage, his father, and Hannah Trussell Gage, his mother. Considering this story is so old, there's very little information on his growing up. All I was able to find was that he was literate i.e. able to read and write, and that he most likely worked on farms and in quarries as a child and teenager. Well, it was more likely to be physical work at that time anyway. Indeed, and it was later on that he started working for the railroad. So, Phineas in 1848 was 25 years old, and as I just mentioned, was working for the railroad. He was the foreman of a crew cutting railroad beds in Cavendish, Vermont. He was described by his co-workers as a most efficient and capable foreman, a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all of his plans of operation. Which I'm sure is quite a glowing account considering they were rather conservative back then. Probably, yeah. So, like I said, there is limited information on his background before the incident. I'm now going to take us to September 13th, 1848. Phineas was leading a crew blasting rocks to make way for the railroad, but obviously... That involves explosives. The terminology blast and rocks kind of already gave me that impression. <laughs> well, since the info is limited on this story, I'll be giving you all I could get. To blast the rocks and use those explosives effectively, a hole was bored into the rock. Since electric drills weren't a thing at the time, I can't imagine that was easy work either. I didn't actually find out how they did that, just that they did. Blasting powder would then be packed into the hole along with a fuse. Sounds like Wiley e. Coyote. He would be proud. <laughs> Anyways, then they would add some sand at the top and pack it all in with a tampering iron rod. Then they light the fuse, it tracks up the fuse into the hole, then blasts apart the rock, enabling them to remove the fragmented rock to be able to line the tracks. It was something Phineas had done over a thousand times before. Also, considering the lack of information in many aspects of this, we actually have a time of accident for some reason. It happened at approximately 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, right before home time. Classic. I thought so too. I was half expecting it to be a Friday. I actually looked up the day of the week just because, and it's a Wednesday. Oh no, the worst hump day ever. <laughs> yep. So Phineas was packing one of the holes with a fuse and blasting powder when some of the men behind him were fooling around. Phineas was distracted momentarily and turned to look at them to say something. When he did this, his head lined up with the iron rod and pole. Oh no. Yep, because in that exact moment, his iron rod scraped off one of the rocks, causing a spark. The spark lit the fuse and gunpowder and blew that iron rod straight through Phineas's head. Oh. Entering through his left cheek, passing behind his left eye and exiting out the top of his skull through the frontal bone. Jeez, it's a wonder he's still alive. I'm sure that's what his crew thought when they found the iron rod 30 feet away and covered in blood and brains. Wow, it blasted the whole way through his skull and cleared it on the other side. 
A couple of sources I find said it was 80 feet, but 30 feet sounds slightly more believable. That is an absolute miracle. There's no way he was fine after that, though, even if he was alive. Yeah, there was some damage. It threw him onto the ground and he landed on his back. He had a seizure, then sat back up and spoke just a few minutes later. So what happened then? 911 or emergency services didn't exist at the time. The old-fashioned way. He walked himself to an ox cart, which took him back to the town he was lodging in, only three quarters of a mile away. The name of the town is unknown. No 911, no cars, and an iron rod just blasted through your skull. That must have been terrifying. I'm sure it was. Although because those things didn't exist at the time, I'm sure it wasn't as scary because you know that that's the way the world worked and you knew what to expect. To die. (laughs) Almost, I guess. Whereas if it happened today where they did exist and they weren't able to access those things when it happened, it would be way more terrifying. At least, I think so anyway. Either way, being shot through the skull with an iron rod would be scary for anyone. Ambulance or no ambulance. (laughs) Definitely. How big was the rod, actually, if you don't mind me asking? One and a quarter inches thick and three feet seven inches long. I'll give you the weight too, six kilos. Another cool point of the story was that it was a custom-made rod, just for Phineas, as he commissioned a blacksmith to make one for him. Whoa, shot through the head with his own rod. Yep, so he gets to the town, which, as I mentioned, wasn't that far away, and 30 minutes after the accident happened, a physician named Edward H. Williams found Phineas sitting in a chair outside his hotel. Phineas, knowing he was the doctor, stopped him and said, Doctor, here is business enough for you. Well, that's the understatement of the year. There's a quote from the doctor from a paper he published. At first I noticed a wound upon the head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brain being very distinct. The top of the head appeared somewhat like an inverted funnel, as if some wedge-shaped body had passed from below upward. Mr. Gage, during this time I was examining this wound, was relating the manner in which he was injured to the bystanders. If you pass someone like that, you'd definitely be the type to stop and ask what happened. (laughs) Stomach of steel. Dr. Williams went on to say, I did not believe his statement at the time, but thought he was deceived. By what exactly? Didn't say. My first thought was that someone had done it to him and he didn't see what happened, or he had some sort of concussion and reasoned that it was the rod. But this next bit is my favourite part of the whole statement. Okay. Mr. Gage persisted on saying that the bar went through his head. Mr. Gage got up and vomited. The effort of vomiting pressed out about a half a teacup full of the brain through the exit hole at the top of the skull, which fell upon the floor. What? That's insane. Surely that must have worried Phineas to see part of his brain plop onto the floor. There's a statement about that too, actually. From a doctor named John Harlow, who took over the case at 6pm that evening with Williams assisting. You will excuse me for remarking here that the picture presented was, to one unaccustomed to military surgery, truly terrific. But the patient bore his sufferings with the most heroic firmness. Are we sure there wasn't a little bit of Russian in his DNA? (laughs) No, but this statement just gets better and better. He recognised me at once and said he hoped he was not much hurt. He seemed to be perfectly conscious but was getting exhausted from the hemorrhage. His person and the bed in which he laid was literally one of gore and blood. With his brain on the floor and the bed soaked in blood? That is just nuts. How polite of a guy is that? But quite a bonkers statement at the same time. I think it might be my favourite so far. So then it came to patching him up. Dr Harlow and Williams shaved Phineas's hair around the gaping wound to be able to clean it and get a better look at the damage. Harlow then removed some of the coagulated blood, some bone fragments... Oh... And just about an ounce or more of his brain. Oh, why do brains have to come into so many of our stories? Especially after last week's episode. 
So then, after probing for foreign bodies like rocks, bits of iron, etc., he, like a jigsaw, placed the two larger pieces of bone back down over the gaping hole. He closed the wound with adhesive straps and left it partially open for drainage. Oh, what about the one in his face? I'm just getting to that now. So the one in his cheek was loosely bandaged for the same reason. To allow it to drain? Yes. Then he applied a wet compress, a nightcap, then further bandaging to keep those in place. This is in the early days of disinfectant too. It is indeed. The first disinfectant was discovered in 1834, but not more widely used until the 1860s. Joseph Lister, that English guy that used phenol for the first time as a disinfectant. That's also where we get the name Listerine. It is indeed. Although Listerine was invented by an American Missouri man named Joseph Lawrence, who was inspired by Joseph Lister. Science, yo! (laughs) Dr. Harlow also dressed Phineas's arms as they had been burned from the explosive powder and told him to keep his head upright or elevated. That night, he wrote more notes about his new fascinating patient. Mind clear, constant agitation of his legs, being retracted and extended. Says he does not care to see his friends as he shall be back at work in a few days. Wow, optimistic much? Very. Did he go back to work in a few days? No, I'll explain what happened in the following days now. So, Phineas, the first day of the accident, was doing pretty well. It surprised Williams he was so bright, but the next day, not so much. I'm sure the brain had swelling. It did, and as a result, whilst he does live, he had a rocky few days. His mother and uncle came to see him from over 30 miles away the morning after the accident. It's a wonder they got there so quickly considering telephones weren't invented. I can only imagine someone had the horseback journey of a lifetime to get the message to them. Yeah, did he recognise them since you said he got worse? Yes, he did. However, later on that day, he became delirious. But by the fourth day, he was rational and knew his friends again. What a roller coaster that must have been. There are quite a few more loops to go through yet. Twelve days after the incident, he was semi-comatose, speaking in monosyllables and only speaking when spoken to. On the thirteenth day, he slipped into a deeper comatose state. The globe of his left eye became more prominent, pushing out of its socket slowly. Probably from that swelling. Exactly, it was. It started to come out the top of his head too. His brain, not his eye. On the fourteenth day, Dr. Harlow recorded... The exhalations from the mouth and head are horribly fetid. Fetid? Which means foul-smelling. Well, I'm not surprised his mouth smelt since it was before toothpaste and oral hygiene. (laughs) True, but also, since it's before proper wound care too, I can't imagine it's all that clean. Also, can someone even shower like that? They probably had baths. Don't think the shower as we know it was invented then. At least not the indoor plumbing type. Anyway, he also wrote... Comatose, but will answer in monosyllables if aroused. I don't think he meant sexually. I hope not. Will not take nourishment unless strongly urged. The friends and attendants are hourly expectancy of his death and have his coffin and clothes in readiness. Wow, imagine surviving something where they have your death garments at the ready. Oh, and also, this is where things get a bit crazier. So a fungus started to sprout out of the top of his skull, which contributed to the heinous smell, and the doctors had to cut them off and apply a caustic silver nitrate to his scalp. Side note, silver nitrate is used in veterinary practices if they cut a dog or cat's nails too short and they hit the quick and they bleed. They use it to stop the bleeding. Wow, cool. Anyways, when he was clearing his head, he removed eight ounces of pus and blood. Jeez, eight ounces. That's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. Interestingly enough, 
Harlow had just recently left Jefferson Medical College, where he had some experiences with head trauma and cerebral abscesses. And because of this, he was greatly instrumental to Phineas's survival. That's pretty lucky. It certainly is. So then on the 24th day, as is recorded by Harlow, Phineas succeeded in raising himself up and took one step to his chair. Just a month after that, he was walking up and downstairs, about the house and into the piazza. Then, according to Dr. Harlow's records, when Harlow was gone for a week, Phineas, quote, was in the street every day except Sunday. Probably because he knew Dr. Harlow was coming back. (laughs) Harlow went on to say that Phineas had an uncontrollable urge by his friends to return to New Hampshire. So he left, wearing no overcoat and thin boots. He got his feet wet and got a chill. He developed a fever, but by mid-November, he was feeling better in every respect and walking about the house again. His prognosis report read, Phineas appears to be in a way of recovering, if he can be controlled. (laughs) He's a strong one. It's a miracle. Then he went back to his parents' house, travelling in a closed carriage. And although quite feeble, thin, weak and childish when he first arrived, he was improving dramatically by late December. By February 1849, he was able to do a little work about the horses and barn, feeding the cattle, and as the time came for ploughing, he was able to do half a day's work after that, and it bore well. Wow. Crazy. His mother did say to an inquiring physician that he had some memory problems, but they were mild and something that a stranger probably wouldn't notice. What about long-lasting injuries aside from some memory issues? Well, he had some issues. He went back to visit Harlow in April 1849, and Harlow said that Phineas lost the vision in his left eye and suffered from ptosis, which is a drooping of the upper eyelid. Yeah, I've seen the pictures. He looks like a broken version of those uh, children's dolls that close their eyes when you lie them down. He does. And as usual, we will be putting the photos up on Facebook and Instagram pages, so click on the links in the show notes to see those. There was also a large scar on the forehead from where they drained that giant gross abscess. His hair grew back well. It looks great. You'd never know about a skull injury from that picture. The following are Harlow's notes. Upon the top of the head, a quadrangular fragment of bone, raised and quite prominent. Behind this is a deep depression, two inches by one and a half inches wide, beneath which the pulsations of the brain can be perceived. Partial paralysis of the left side of the face, His physical health is good, and I am inclined to say he has recovered. He has no pain in the head, but has a queer feeling which he is not able to describe. He also lost a left molar. Where the bar shot him through the cheek. Yeah. He also had some weakness in his body, and lacked a lot of physical strength. But despite this, he made a complete recovery. A medical marvel. Exactly. And as such, he became famous, as did Harlow and Williams. Mainly Dr. Harlow, though. So then, in November 1849, a man named Henry Jacob, and I can't believe I get to say this name for real, Bigelow, the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, brought Phineas in for some probing and questioning. And after being satisfied that the rod had passed the whole way through his skull, he presented Phineas at a meeting of the Boston School for Medical Improvement, and rumoured to be the medical school class. Wow, sounds like a lab monkey. It almost does, doesn't it? So... Because he was weakened, he wasn't able to continue doing his job working for the railroad. So he spent his time being a medical exhibit at Barnum's America Museum in New York City. I also want to make the distinction that this wasn't Barnum's circus. He was never a freak show exhibit. There were also posters of exhibitions of Phineas in New Hampshire and Vermont. 
he did a lot of traveling and made a lot of appearances. The marvel was lost, however, on the general public, who didn't quite understand how miraculous this really was. So his traveling and exhibitions didn't last long. Oh, I guess you don't get many of those today either. Probably for the same reasons, but if there was one, I'd love to go. For 18 months, he worked for a stable and coach service in Hanover, New Hampshire. In 1852, four years after the incident, Phineas got invited to Chile with a job offer to work as a long-distance stagecoach driver, caring for horses and often driving a coach heavily laden and drawn by six horses on the Valparaiso-Santiago route. He stayed here for a number of years and in 1859, with his health slowly deteriorating, he left Chile for San Francisco, arriving, to his mother's words, in a feeble condition, having failed very much since leaving New Hampshire. He had many turns while in Valparaiso, especially during the last year, and suffered much from hardship and exposure. I thought she lived in New Hampshire. She'd moved to San Fran from New Hampshire when he was in Chile. Oh, as mums do. I'm sure she fed him up well. <laughs> she did. And then in February 1860, Phineas began to suffer from seizures. They became more frequent, and as time went on, he lost his job on a farm in Santa Clara. He tried to do an odd job here and there where he could, but it was never stable work and it was limited. So, on May 18th, 1860, Phineas went back home to his mother in San Francisco. And on the 20th of May, just two days later, at 5am, Phineas had a massive convulsive seizure. His mother called the doctor who bled him. Bled him like bleeding out? Well, almost. Typically, it refers to leeches being used on someone to draw out the infected blood. Anyway, it didn't do much because he had convulsions all day and all night. Phineas died from one of those seizures on May 21st, 1860. He was just 36 years old. I can only imagine how distressing that must have been for his mother. I don't know how a mother could cope with watching that. Phineas was buried in San Francisco's Lone Mountain Cemetery. Also, weird thing here, Dr. Harlow heard about Phineas's death and six years after it occurred, contacted his family. He got them to dig his body back up and give him the skull. The family personally delivered it to him. A bit strange. It really is. So the personalised iron bar he had made that had been through his brain, he held on to pretty much the rest of his life. He did give it at one point to Warren's Anatomical Museum, but he got it back after about a year and proceeded to take it everywhere with him. Harlow got that too? Yes. So then, in 1868-1869, Harlow, after writing a paper, gave the skull and rod to Warren Anatomical Museum, where they remain on display to this day. I'd love to see that one day if we ever visit Massachusetts. Me too. The rest of his body's remains were then moved to Cypress Lawn Memorial Park in California. Okay, so this is where I'm going to talk about why Phineas Gage was such a medical marvel and instrumental in neuroscience and its research. I'll talk about the main bits, but this story is about him, not neuroscience, so I won't bore you with the complicated details. There is extremely high probability that Phineas was the first ever case to suggest that the brain had a role in determining personality, and that damage to specific parts of the brain could result in personality and behaviour changes. There's information out there that says he underwent some strong personality changes. However, there's not enough evidence to prove that to be true, as it relies on accounts by other people in a time where writing about others and oneself was not common practice. This was before Phineas was famous, so there wasn't a lot of information on what his life was like before. When he was dead, 
the changes reported were far more dramatic than those reported by friends and those who knew him whilst he was alive. That's fascinating. The strongest, most credible sources of information pertaining to the personality changes is from a psychologist named Malcolm McMillan. McMillan explored all reports of behaviour changes from Phineas. He said that before the accident, he was hardworking, responsible and well-liked by his peers. McMillan noted that after the accident, he seemed relatively unimpaired, apart from small random bouts of delirium. However, the personality changes were so strong that the railroad crew wouldn't hire him back. They're more likely to let a guy go because he's lacking the same physical strength than he's just not himself anymore. Exactly. And this was an actual note from Dr. Harlow. The equilibrium or balance, so too, faculties and animal propensities seem to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanities, which is not previously his custom manifesting but little difference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice which conflicts with his desires. At times, pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operations, which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. A child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man, Previous to his injury, although when trained in schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all of his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was so radically changed, so decidedly, that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. Well, Harlow did know him and he was his doctor. See, this is where it's about to get a bit more interesting. Bigelow, the doctor from Harvard, who took him for a bit as a medical exhibit, contradicted Harlow's statement. He had in fact read Harlow's statement on the personality changes and wrote an opposing statement saying that there was no difference in his mental manifestations after the recovery. It is not true that he was gross, profane, coarse and vulgar such to a degree that his society was intolerable to decent people. Oh wow. But just a point here, Harlow is his real doctor and saw him more often, so settle down there, Bigelow. Also, the behaviour changes Dr. Harlow described is unfortunately classic brain damage behaviour. That's a good point, and I also agree with you. I'm more inclined to believe Dr. Harlow, even if Bigelow is heading up things there in Harvard. But when they asked his boss in Chile, he said that there were no behavioural problems that he noticed. He worked for a stagecoach company for eight years, which had customers, which meant that Phineas couldn't be rude and vulgar because he was dealing with the public and would have lost his job if that had been the case. Oh, which means what exactly? It was temporary or Harlow was just the one exaggerating the whole time? Well, if that isn't the question of the day. Most likely that it was temporary, but with conflicting reports, it muddies the waters. Macmillan, who studied the reports of behaviour changes in Phineas, believes that the evidence is stronger to believe that it may have been temporary because of the job in Chile. Driving and dealing with passengers required a decent cognitive function. So how did it suddenly change back? Well, it wasn't sudden, but they think that it was the routine that his job in Chile gave him. That is impressive if it is true. It was that he had a clear schedule and routine of tasks in his job that resembled a later rehabilitation regime developed by a later neuropsychologist regarding the frontal lobal injuries in World War II patients. Macmillan dissected the reports of Phineas after his accident and came to the conclusion that most of his behavioural changes were either right after the accident or in the days after he left Chile due to his increasingly frequent seizures. 
Also, most behavioural reports on Phineas were second-hand and not from those who actually knew or interacted with him. That's really interesting too. Yeah, and he had also supported himself whilst travelling, marketing himself, which required a decent level of mental power and social skills, which would not have been possible if the behavioural changes were as bad as stated. Also, interesting fact here, but remember I said Harlow had experience in cerebral abscesses? Well, his professor had a patient with one and didn't leave a draining point, so his patient died, and they discovered the reason upon autopsy. Basically, it occurred again and built up, and there was a lack of draining point. So, Harlow made sure to include one this time. The first time, he had this happen to his own patient, and subsequently saved Phineas's life. That's pretty amazing. He himself had only graduated four years prior to. Wow. I think that's fascinating. There was one movie made about him, but it was more focused on Dr. Harlow than Phineas. It's called Gage, and it came out in 2014. I haven't watched it, but I may check it out at some point. I don't know the platform it's available on, though. There was a book written on him, not by him, called Phineas Gage, a true but gruesome story about brain science, released in 2002 by John Fleischman. People have also written books where he's mentioned in them, but most of them are medical or psychology books. Over the years, there have been plenty of scientific articles and papers out there if anyone cares to read them. So yeah, on that note, we are done with the story of Phineas Gage, a medical marvel, a major success for brain injuries and the after effects. That was such a great shorty. I'm really liking these shorty episodes so far. Me too. Well, that's it again for this week. As usual, you can find the pictures on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Just click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to leave us a review. And if you have any stories you want us to cover or you want to ask us any questions, please send an email to notmenottodaypodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not me, not today podcast. Shorty.